Amy Carson, and this is The Balance, Understanding Nonprofit Finance. On today's episode, Matt Janesco and Jim Coben join me to talk about using systems to optimize the accounting function. Hello, welcome to this week's episode of The Balance. Our first guest today is Matt Janesco. Matt is the Executive Director and CEO of Sisters of Charity Housing Development Corporation. Welcome, Matt. Hey, Amy. Thanks for having me. Great to be here. Thank you. Matt, would you just give us a little bit of background, who you are, what you do, your current role? Sure. Uh, So I'm the Executive Director of SCHDC, as we like to call it. Uh, We are a nonprofit that is Uh, devoted to creating, developing, managing, and advocating for affordable housing, primarily for seniors. Uh, We have over 700 units currently online right now, and we have approximately 500 more units in various stages of pre-development. So we are located in and around New York. Uh, So we have several buildings in Staten Island, in Manhattan, and then Rockland County. And we're on the cusp of breaking into the Bronx and Orange County, as well as uh, Westchester. So we're a growing organization that focuses on creating housing for people who need it. And Matt, we started working together two and a half years ago, right when you started in this current role. And I think one of the big things, which is the topic of today's conversation, that you noted right off the cuff that you just realized was going to be imperative for the organization to survive was you need to have strong accounting and finance systems. And that's both from a procedures perspective, but also from an actual technology perspective. So can you just kind of take us back to that time and what was going on? Sure. So we are an organization that began in Staten Island. And then as the Sisters of Charity of New York uh, had other housing developments in different areas, they sort of grafted them on to our organization. And so you had, in a sense, everyone moving in a different direction. And in particular, what makes this difficult is when you have multiple developments under different sets of rules. So we had things that were done with HUD. We had things that were were being done with homes and community renewal in New York State. And then we had something that was working with the Department of Homeless Services in New York City. And that was really our biggest issue when we first spoke, because the city of New York has all these different rules And the shelter, it was a small one, and it really was a mom and pop operation. And that was fine until the city modernized all of its financial procedures and the shelter didn't. And so we were in this situation where there were all these new expectations and we didn't have the backroom operations. And so it was taking everything in a sense online when we were doing most of everything on pencil and paper. I mean, there were no requisition forms. There was no approval. It was a bill came in and a check went out. It was at the end of the month, there was some type of reconciliation done, but there was no intentionality in managing this. And finally, the way the city works is you invoice against your expenses. So you're always at least a month behind. So if you're not paying attention to cash flow, we kept paying bills. And if the money was from the city was delayed, we would look at the end of the fiscal year, we'd be two months out and the checking account would be empty. And that's 
not a way to run a business. That's very true. And from your vantage point, this wasn't just one entity. This was across multiple entities that were doing different things. So getting things streamlined and everything is a challenge. So that's a perfect segue for our next guest, Jim Coben. He is the CEO and founder of Coben Computer Solutions. He's also been our outsourced IT provider for about six years now. So welcome, Jim. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Jim, can you tell us a little bit about you, your background, your company? I started Coben Computer Solutions, or CCS for short, back in 2004, when we were heavy in the residential market. And as the years passed on, it was more and more evident that small businesses needed a higher utilization of technology, but could not really afford full-time staff to cover all areas of IT expertise. So over time, we began catering directly to small businesses where we would act as that virtual CTO or more so as an extension of our clients by being that IT arm or department, if you will, without the cost of having to hire those full-time staff members. So what we've been able to do is by utilizing automation and proper tool sets, we're bringing enterprise-level technology, applications, hardware, down to the SMB level. So small businesses only pay for what they use or what they need. Yep. And it's worked quite successfully for us through the years. And I think what's actually just kind of going back to what Matt was just discussing, I think what's actually becoming has become strikingly obvious to me, particularly over the past two years with the pandemic, is the importance and the correlation between technology and having strong, efficient accounting and finance systems. And even just using technology to run my own or our own finance and accounting company. So Jim, it would be really helpful if you wouldn't mind just talking, giving a couple examples of how you've worked with clients over the past few years, particularly in light of the pandemic, to minimize IT disruptions, to help maybe automate different yeah. areas it would be helpful. Sure. So we, we always address remote capabilities with all of our clients, but it became a lot more evident during the pandemic where these capabilities became critical to their ability to work, ability to function and access their systems. BrandK is a great example. A monitoring platform, for example, digs into the network. We're able to isolate issues before they become evident. We can yeah. scan hard drives. We can tell if a system is going to crash before it crashes. Same with our endpoint security software. We're able to detect infections or malware prior to it actually spreading across the network or becoming realized on the network. So these are just small examples of how we help minimize disruptions. But through technology, we've been able to maintain the ability for a, an office to be fully functional remotely during the mm -hmm. pandemic and actually get what they need done. That's, it's huge. Matt, would you mind just talking a little bit about maybe some of the IT challenges that you faced over the past couple of years and how you've mitigated some of that? So like, I guess the first thing is that technology is great, but people need to know how to use it. And it sounds so obvious, but like it was always in like my prior positions where people would say, well, you know, our website needs to get better and you could have the best looking website in the world, but if there's no content on it, like what's, what's the point? 
it's the same thing with IT stuff. And it's the same thing with our financial management. Like a huge part that you did, Amy, and your team was teaching our staff how to use, you know, something like bill.com, how to go online. I remember we were using this antiquated, at least for the shelter, this very antiquated accounting software that was like named after a flower or a vegetable or a fruit or something. And it's like peaches, I think it was, right? And and you were like, this isn't going to work. And so, you know, that teaching our staff how to use that has totally made our lives and my life as a manager easier. Um, At the same time, one of the transitions that we need to enter into is we still write these paper checks, you know, which is a terrible thing because, well, before I got there, they ordered like a thousand of these paper checks. And so we're trying to use them up before we get rid of them. But just looking at, at something like that, like how many headaches have I had in the past year and a half, two years during the pandemic, where more checks were being stolen, more checks were being washed. I mean, this is something that we went over again and again. But when we get to that point, it's going to be, again, learning how, teaching staff how to write a check off of QuickBooks rather than writing it out with a with a pen and paper. Yeah, Peachtree is the antiquated version. But I think that Matt actually brings up an amazing point. It's how do you deal with resistance to change. And we see it all the time. We try now to put all of our clients onto, or the majority of our clients onto QuickBooks Online, which, you know, most of our clients are smaller, have annual operating budgets between $1 million to $4 million. Usually QuickBooks Online is a perfectly appropriate accounting solution. But boy, oh boy, do we see hesitancy moving from desktop QuickBooks to QuickBooks Online and it's very hard to kind of get people onto this type of a platform. The other platform we use a lot is um, it's an online system called ShareFile. It's like an online repository. Matt, I believe we're using it with you too, um, where we save documents and it's great, but people really love their filing cabinets and they like paper. And so making that change is hard. Matt, I did not know that you are still writing paper checks. Uh, That is, fascinating. Well, and like, and it's one of those things where we should be doing more and more, even like online payments. Yep. Like that's the way it should go. But there's this, I think a generational thing yes. where people don't like things that are not tactile. You know, I like printing out things and then reading them, right. Which yep. is a total waste of paper, but I'm still, you know, I'm, I'm old. So that's what I like where I'm sure that my, you know, people that are 10 years younger than me are going to be like, oh, we read it all on online. And I think that the point of moving people over or the, the buy-in really comes from showing them that life is going to get easier. Because yes. in our case, like once you kind of got our staff on board, and I think it was sort of carrot and stick. Like it was, this is going to make your life easier, but also if you want to keep working here, like this is the way we're going to do it. I think that that now there's no question about it. Now there's no, it's been completely integrated and no one even questions like bill.com. Like like no, like literally it is the smoothest thing that it just kind of rolls through and they submit the payment. You, you approve it, make sure it's coded correctly. And then I do it. And another thing that helps is because of when these systems are set up, 
now I'm not worried about making sure things are coded correctly because I really don't care how they're coded. What I care about is when the auditors come and yell at me, right? That's what I can. And so if I'm wasting my time going through and making sure things are coded, you know, it's going to take me an hour to do that where if we have a system in place, it's going to take 20 seconds. And that's so important. I think you actually just made a couple of good points. First, um, and I'd love to rope Jim in here, in terms of the the best way to get someone on board is to show them that this is going to make their lives easier. I think that's also very hard to do. And my partner, Allison, who I believe handled this for you, Matt, is excellent at this because it takes patience. It takes It takes something that, quite frankly, I don't have. Um, But Jim, I'm curious how you deal with this with your clients and trying to kind of get them over the hump. Yeah, we run into a lot of different situations. Um, In some cases, it's people not wanting to lose control. They feel like if the software is on my server or the software is on my desktop, they have more control over it. Where essentially you have a little more risk because you now have to ensure that data is backed up properly. And if that machine crashes, you're going to lose that data, right? As opposed to having it online. You have, let's say, an office manager or a billing person who feels like they're going to lose their job. Everything's yeah. going online, you know, but that's that's just not the case. You know, you still have to go through the motions and you still have to punch in the numbers. You're just going to do it on a different medium, right? We have run into issues where online didn't work for some people. So QuickBooks, every entry inside QuickBooks is recorded as a target. Mm-hmm. And when you have a certain amount of targets, QuickBooks Online will not import that data. Mm-hmm. So you have to trim data. And to trim data, there's a tool and a function inside QuickBooks where you can go back and trim previous year's data. Yep. So we did that for a couple of clients. And when they realized they had to trim X amount of years, they said, nah, forget it. We're staying where we are. So I think there's always going to be a need for that desktop version, mm-hmm. right? But I think that a lot of people are, are still missing out on the online version. I'm yeah. probably one of them, to be honest with you. And that's just because I'm a creature of habit. So I click, click, go, click, click, go, and I'm done. I, I have to learn something new if I switch everything to QuickBooks Online. So uh, that's the fourth type of person we run into. Yep. Yeah. yeah. But I think I think for a small business such as yours, the need is less relevant to switch because the one of the biggest benefits of QuickBooks Online is just that multiple people have access, can have access to the books in a pretty simple fashion. So the auditor can and yeah. Right. In my case, it's really, it's really just me. And I'm in it maybe once a week, if that. So you know, to do yeah. some billing and I'm out. So I don't, I don't theoretically need the ability to access it everywhere, but, you know, I'd be lying if I said we had to provide remote access to people to log into their computers to get into QuickBooks. So now they're creating these VPN tunnels just to get into their desktop to get into QuickBooks when they could just do it from a browser online. Exactly. Yeah. And also these technology, like it also makes it CEO proof which is really important because like, I don't have the, if I were to like look at people's spreadsheets, their their sort of idiosyncratic spreadsheets, like now I don't know what I'm looking at. So I'm going to drive my accounting people crazy by asking them to make charts for me that I can understand that are idiosyncratic for me. 
And then I'm going to spend my time asking them for information that I don't understand that then I'm going to pass off to the auditor that the auditor is not going to understand. And they're going to ask the bookkeeper to do it over again. Exactly. Right. And the other thing, and, you know, Amy, you and I had talked about this as well, that, uh, you know, previously that it also like frees up people to do their jobs where like it's, you know, that the chief financial officer of a small business should not be spending time with their two fingers pecking in numbers, like on a spreadsheet um, to create some type of financial modeling, right? They should be spending their time actually managing finances because there's a difference between a bookkeeper and a chief finance officer. And I think that online platforms and utilizing technology reminds everybody what the lane is. You know, I think that that can't be understated how important that is. I completely agree. Jim, are you using, are you, well, are your clients using bill.com for accounts payable systems or Expensify for receipt management? These are all systems that we've recently over the past couple of years have implemented and we've seen kind of tremendous success, both from a, well, I guess it's twofold. The first, which Matt made the point earlier, auditors love this because we can literally hand them a system and say, have at it look at whatever you want. And it's all there. And it also, it takes a lot of pressure off the CEO because this is the information's all there. But it also just, it streamlines it. It takes, it ultimately cuts the time in half that's required to, you know, monitor those functions. So I'm curious if you have experience using these types of systems or other comparable systems. So most of our clients have not actually asked us to help implement anything of that nature, but I could tell you, I still get a lot of paper checks. Um, really? When I get, and I have actually spoken to the clients and I said, listen, you don't have to put a stamp on the envelope. You could pay your 50 cents and do it online. No, 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 no. We're still going to, we've got a process. I said, okay, whatever works for you out of our 60 businesses under contract, I would say at least half send paper checks. Yeah. I mean, that adds work for us because I have to make a trip to a PO box. I have to now get a deposit slip and I have to punch that in. Some of them think they're um, light waves in the future because they're probably initiating it from their bank and they're saying pay, but the bank is then initiating a check, right? So they're yeah. sending a paper check. So um, yeah, uh, we do have a couple of clients who use the little link in our QuickBooks um, pay now button and they'll, they'll pay online. And then that's really nice because it reconciles very quickly in QuickBooks. A couple through bill.com, but yeah, it's it, it's very hard to change people's behavior. It really is. That's, yeah. that's what we're seeing. Yeah, without question. And then just speaking to the security of some of these systems. I know this is, as a small business owner that's telling Matt and telling all of our other clients to be using these types of online systems, the number one question, especially right now in light of what's going on overseas that we're getting is around security and cybersecurity. Are these systems safe? And what is the difference between using like from a security perspective, using a system like bill.com versus like writing a paper check. What, help us understand those. The key point here is security because when you're remoted into your office network, you're opening up a slew of services and ports and protocols that could be hackable. And a lot of people don't think about it. 
they think about being on their network or being on their computer. But there are so many layers of security to talk about that really become critical to keeping those disruptions down, keeping productivity up, keeping systems you know, online. Now, with all these mainstream solutions out there, QuickBooks Online, Citrix ShareFile, obviously, these are secure platforms. So they're secure. The data is encrypted in transit. It's encrypted in, at rest. There's no concern in, in using these platforms over the internet. The concern should be your systems, right? Your network. Yeah. Layering that security is definitely key. And that's all we do. We layer the security. So the more layers you have, the harder it is to peel back the network and to break in. So we'll, we'll attack the firewall layer. We'll attack the web layer. We'll attack the workstation layer, two-factor authentication, vulnerability mm-hmm. scanning. So it's all about detecting things before they become an issue, right? I always say I like to fight the bad guy outside of my house rather than fighting the bad guy inside of my house. Right. So that's where cybersecurity really comes into play. Right. But the bad guy outside of my house could be sitting in Matt's house, right? So I think oh, yeah. brand K, we can set up protocols, which you know we have and you do trainings with us. We actually just set up a new platform where we're also kind of testing staff on, with phishing emails and we're doing all these things internally. Yeah. But like, what should Matt be doing? And maybe actually before you even answer that, Matt, like what, like from an IT perspective, like what are your thoughts here? And Well, I could tell you what you shouldn't be doing <laughs> is you shouldn't be like me six months ago who got an email from a colleague about, this is our new project, our list of projects. And I put in my username and I put my password. Yeah. And all of a sudden, like I kept getting these emails, like, is this legit? And they had, they went in and they got the, you know, and when I emailed the guy, hey, this isn't working. He just said, hey, put in your e- username and password. And like, so I thought, oh, well, John is obviously writing back to me. And yeah. then they set the rules that every email that had a dot in it went into delete. So they, I wouldn't know. And, you know, it took a while to get back. And then we installed Norton and like lesson learned that I was the fool, you know, and, and I'm mortified to say this. And now it's going to be on the internet that I was like the guy who did it. Cause I always think like, how does that happen? But in a sense, it's just unfortunately takes like a disaster. Like, and it wasn't a disaster, right? Like this, yep. they didn't steal any files. I was, didn't have access to my email for six hours, like boohoo, right? The people who opened it were not people I, like they, I don't work with them closely because they, what they do is they don't send it to like the people you email all the time. They sent it to people who exactly. you email like are on distribution lists. So it's very smart and devious, but I guess for me, it would be helpful to be reminded of these things like on a regular basis, because I don't, because the, the whole like bad guys are always one step ahead of the good guys. Like that's the rule. That's why they're bad guys. And so, you know, just, I think that's really the, the key, but at the same time, so it took six hours and a couple phone calls to Microsoft to rid them and then set up this two step authorization. You know, it, it took, six hours, right? Maybe in, in person power. Well, when the check was washed and the count was corrupted, it took us stopping the check, getting the money back from the bank, 
Now all of a sudden their accounts restricted. So we, they mail us the statement at the end of every month. So then it happened again. And so now we went to reverse positive pay, but that costs a dollar a day. And every day someone needs to log in and just check and make sure and all of that. And so it's taken money and a lot more time. And I think that that's the, you know, that's sort of what's at stake in a sense. Like that's the difference. Yep. So even the technology, if you have good technology people, even if you screw up, like it's easy, it's takes normally, unless you're dealing with an evil genius, right? You can kind of walk things back because no one's going to ransom my housing data for a million dollars in Bitcoin, right? That's not going to happen. They are going to make my life miserable for a few hours where the old fashioned way of stealing things makes it more difficult. And then I have a conversation with our bank and say, hey, there's supposed to be a two signature thing on this. And they go, oh, we don't check that anymore. Unless yes. it's over X amount, we don't even pay any attention. And I'm back to like, well, then why are we still writing checks? So I have one final question for both of you. What is one piece of advice you would give to a nonprofit organization who knows they need more systems but are having trouble implementing them? Don't be afraid of technology. Technology should not be a showstopper. Technology should not be a roadblock. A lot of times you might have to put a little bit more work up front, maybe to learn the new system or to migrate your data or, or go through an implementation of a new product. But technology should give you some sort of um, return on investment. It should make things easier. And where, where you can automate, you should automate. I always tell my staff, don't take on manual tasks. If you have to do something once, fine. If you have to do something twice, you need to automate it. Also, this automation also helps the professionals do their jobs so that small business owners can do their jobs, right? So when we brought in, we received a grant for over a million dollars, a yearly million dollar grant. And so our corporate books we would be doing them very capably, but now all of a sudden there's all this extra money sloshing around that again is auditable by the state of New York. And it was like, so now when we code, th we send things over to brand K and you say, no, no, don't do it this way. Or you're going to get into trouble if you co if you try and do that. And that was with Trish has been great in keeping us out of the penalty box, so to speak, because automation doesn't just stop bad actors. It helps good actors stay away from making rookie mistakes. And, you know, and I, I remember saying to Vanessa, who works, you know, was on our staff, like, ask the accountants, is there a way we can do this? And if there's not, then we won't. And on a couple of times you said, yes, you can do this because this is how it's reasoned through, fine. But if the answer is no, well, then because of that automation, now I know the answer rather than two years down the line. It removes that element of human error at the end of the day, especially like, you know, if you, you, you know how to brush your teeth, you know how to write a check, but one day, one day it was slip of the pen, something's going to go wrong. Right. And it's, it's human, it's human nature. People make mistakes, but if you can automate a task, automate it, always automate it. This has been great. Thanks so much to you both. Thank you. Thanks. Thank you for listening to The Balance. I'm your host, Amy Carson. You can learn more about our company, Brand K Partners, and what we do at brandkpartners.com. Our production partner for this series is Citizen Racecar, 
And this episode was produced by David Hoffman, post-production by Garrett Tiedemann, and production managed by Gabriella Montekin. If you like the show, never miss an episode by subscribing on all your favorite podcast apps. And please leave a rating and a review. See you next time.